0: Perfectly Hidden Depression, how to break free from the perfectionism that masks. Are you hiding a depression behind a smile? Would you like to learn characteristics of perfectly hidden depression and discover helpful ways on how to properly deal with it? Then you're in the right place. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and she's going to talk about some of the ways to identify and deal with depression that may be hidden. And stay towards the end, because I have a special at the end and some great announcements. Please give us a thumbs up if you are able to hear and see us. Welcome to Happy and Healthy Mind. If this is the first time you guys are joining us, my name is Dr. Rosina, and I have been serving as a medical doctor specializing in psychiatry, a best-selling author and speaker. I started this program because I truly believe that a lot of suffering can be prevented with simple mind training. So we bring practical tools in these programs so you can avoid suffering unnecessarily. The purpose of this program is education and not treatment. So please consult your healthcare provider for specific advice. Our mission is to bring health and happiness to more than a million people. So if you find value, please like, subscribe, and share so more people can benefit and live happier and healthier life. And if you're joining us live today, you can put your questions in the comment section and we'll try to answer them. If you would like to join us in future in live program, you can text the word joyful to 38470. And we'd be happy to send you a reminder and resources link. And so today our guest is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Hi, Dr. Rutherford. Hi.
1: Thanks thanks for joining.
0: So Dr. Margaret has been a psychologist in private practice for over 25 years and is the author of the book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. In her book, she shares a lot of clinical cases and techniques, and we'll learn some of those today. So before we ask Dr. Margaret a question, I have a question for you guys attending live. Please share, do you do you know anybody who may have depression or anxiety that is hidden? You just have to say yes or no, okay? So Dr. Margaret, how did this topic become important in your life?
1: Well, actually, Rosina, I have been blogging longer than I've been podcasting. I've been blogging since 2012. And back in the spring of 2014, I was just sitting in my sunroom and thinking about some of the patients that I had seen over the years that, one, I had not initially diagnosed with depression, but two, would certainly never say to me when they walked through the door, I'm depressed. In fact, usually they were like, I'm not real sure why I'm here, but there's something in my gut telling me something's wrong or I'm anxious or my partner says I need therapy or something like that. But the similarity between all of them is that they were highly perfectionistic. They carried a lot of shame. And fear, and that was driving the perfectionism. The other thing that was so notable, they could be talking about something that most of us would consider traumatic, like a rape or or, um, abusive parents or something, and they would be smiling. They would be saying, oh, well, you know, that was a long time ago, and it's really not important. So the work became to connect them with those emotions. But I wrote about these people in a post called The Perfect... I just grabbed the term Perfectly Hidden Depression out of the air and said the Perfectly hidden, depressed person. Are you one? Well, the post went viral, and I had never had a post go viral before, and I was pretty shocked at the time. I was writing for HuffPost, and I put it on there, and I had forgotten that I had left my email address on the bottom of the post, (laughs) so your email box got (laughs) filled. Well, I got hundreds of emails. How do you know this? It's like you're inside my head. I'm. I think my wife has this. You know, whatever. So I trudged through all those emails and, and said, you know, I I'm, thank you so much. And this is so I, I got really interested in the topic and started looking at both the academic literature and the popular literature. And of course, I found Dr. Brené Brown's work on vulnerability and shame and perfectionism. But even she didn't really talk about or focus on the specific link between perfectionism and depression. The academic researchers did, and they were finding that as perfectionism rates go up, so so were suicide rates, and they were correlated with one another, especially with one specific kind of perfectionism. So I contacted them, talked with them, and I, I just said, well, this book has found me. I'm going to write a book called Perfectly Hidden Depression.
0: That's wonderful. Great, because it can help so many people. Like I call it like high functional depression. And you, how do you differentiate from a high functional depression means a person who has depression, but they're able to still function at a higher level. I think the hidden depression is a little different. So can you explain the difference?
1: It is. You know, I think people who have high functioning or smiling depression will hear, see themselves in the book as well. But you just said it. They know they're depressed. They can go down the symptom criteria list diagnostically for depression and they go, Yes, I have this. I'm hopeless. I feel helpless. I have foggy thinking. Sometimes I think about killing myself. I don't enjoy things I used to enjoy as much. All the symptoms fit them. Maybe. Even, but they somehow have the ability to slap a smile on their face and go about, it. and not that have more severe than that, aren't have some sort of weakness, they don't, but for some reason, those people are able to do that. Actually, the people that I'm most concerned about well, not I'm very concerned about are the people who don't know anything is wrong, they think the way they're living is lot in life one is successful. They look fulfilled, they, they, they have great friends, they are very busy in the community, they volunteer, they work hard, they raise their kids, they work in church, they do all these kinds of things, and they look very, very productive and engaged, but there's something wrong. They cannot, like those people I was telling you in the office, they can't connect with pain. They have literally compartmentalized that pain so long that uh, started most likely in childhood that it has become an unconscious process all of us drive and we can remember laughingly when we first started to drive we had to focus on 10 and 2 and and everything was very conscious and thought out and now we get in our cars and we we don't even think about it that's what happens with perfectly hidden depression it goes it becomes an unconscious process And what you're doing, you know, Freud said therapy is all about bringing the unconscious to consciousness. And in some ways, that work is very typical with perfectly hidden depression as well.
0: So how do you diagnose if a person doesn't even recognize the symptoms? How do you diagnose this hidden depression?
1: Yes, well... I, as I said yesterday when we chatted, I'm not smart enough to think that I came up with some diagnosis that no one's ever thought about. There were writers of uh, researchers in the 1990s who were talking about the dangers of perfectionism and that when you have a perfectionistic person in front of you, you really need to be attuned to that idea that, so as far as diagnostically, it's, I think of it as a syndrome you don't diagnose codependence, which is probably the most well-known You say, oh, I see you as having or being codependent. Perfectly hidden depression is the same way. And what I did was I came up with 10 traits that I thought were very reflective of someone, their behaviors, what do these look like out in public or in their own private lives? What do they look like so that clinicians Mental health professionals could have a rubric to use to say, well, gosh, fits this this trait of the syndrome and this one and this one and this one, and it. When the cardio community years ago, when they were trying to find out if someone was likely to have a heart attack, all the research was done with men, and so they they lost this. They would say, oh no, you don't have any kind of cardiology problem, and and women have heart attacks. And until we understood symptom picture for a woman with a potential for a heart attack be different than all then all of a sudden women you know got diagnosed with cardiovascular disease the same thing i think needs to happen in the mental health profession we need to understand that sometimes if we follow our rigid little checklist and say no you don't fit this so you rest then miss the we could miss people who actually could very well die by suicides. Yeah. It's a serious problem.
0: So, yeah, yeah. So it may really help to know what are these traits that would make somebody have, at least consider if someone of the audience is hearing, what kind of traits they should look
1: for. Sure. Well, again, the the major trait is lots of perfectionism, high, high not constructive Not perfectionism that is innately fulfilling, not perfectionism that brings joy, you know, trying to do well, but perfectionism that is fueled by shame or fear. Maybe they had a parent who screamed at them, you'll never amount to anything. Or maybe they grew up in a family where you simply didn't talk about painful emotions. You were sent to your room. You never heard your the adults in the family talking about anything but being grateful. These people are highly responsible. In fact, uber responsible. They take on all kinds of tasks, and they don't take one off their plate when they add one. They just pile it on analytical they don't like doing emotions very well and they stay in their head they are they discount trauma they or deny it completely they also again don't have language to express painful emotion very well they are really good friends they're, they're they're the person that is on your doorstep when something happens and you need a friend but you don't know much about them these are people who like a lot of control and they worry but they don't you're they're not thought of as a warrior because they get vulnerability right you know if you're a warrior so you don't reveal that but you worry and then what how you take care of your worry is to grab more control which causes more fatigue which causes you know more shame which causes more need for control and so there's this cycle these people count their blessings they don't believe they don't see that even a, a blessing an underbelly that and so they'll they even say to you, when well, they always look on the bright side, John Kabat Zinn calls it rigid positivity, and that's a great term. These people are also, you know, they usually are doing very well in the workplace. They, what do we like? we perfectionists for us, right? I, I know I want my tax attorney to be <laughs> a perfectionist, I want my doctor to be that, and you know. They are. They get a lot done in a little bit of time, and so they're rewarded in their work life. The problem is they don't know how to do emotional intimacy. And then the last one is they frequently do have, or can certainly, actual clinical diagnosis. Usually it's some form of anxiety, it's an eating disorder. They can have problems with a substance because they're trying to escape. So you you don't want to, you know, you can have generalized anxiety disorder or OCD or panic attacks and have the syndrome of per- perfectly hidden depression all at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because, you know, as you were saying, some of the initial traits, it seems like, okay, I also have it. I know a lot of you. <laughs> why so we are a little bit perfectionists we little kind of are more positive we focus on gratitude and so these are kind of positive traits so what makes hidden depression have the negative consequences and so what you were i what i heard you identify was not accepting of your emotions not having the emotional language to express Minimizing something, you're feeling it, but you're trying to hide it. And you're focusing so much on taking care of other people that you
1: don't take care of yourself. Yeah. Am you I kind be, of on right, right track? You you may not even feel it. I mean, you don't know how you feel. You're just kind of lost. But it's balance. You know, I think that if if you're responsible, that's okay. Like, but I'm talking about responsibility. I'm literally talking about people who And the patients that come in to see me that have this or or identify with it, have makes it sound like a diagnosis, they identify with it. I'll say they'll say, well, I'm you know, I was contacted to be to be the chair of this non committee to raise money. And I'll say, so what are you going to give up? And they're just astounded. What do you mean? What am I going to give up? I'll just stay up later or I'll get up earlier. Or, you know, that nothing comes off. So it is it, the lack of personal boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, you know, focus mm-hmm. on accomplishment and tasks. Yeah. You so, know, it
0: would help. It would help if we can. Can you share an example of someone typical with this kind of syndrome?
1: Sure. In fact, this young woman was the first person who ever came into my office and said, I heard you talking about perfectly hidden depression and I think I have it, but then the second thing she said to me, as she kind of, you know, kicked her foot and looked down, she goes, "But I can't talk to you about much of anything right now. I'm too, way too uncomfortable." And I said, "Okay, you know, you're in charge. You're in charge." Well, come to find out, over about quite a quite a while, about a year and a half, that I saw her every week or every other week. As a child, she had been assaulted physically by her father not sexually but physically to the point where she had to have several surgeries but all her mother did was they. she got divorced but her mother never talked about her father she knew nothing about her father the whole family just didn't talk about anything like that that was painful she took ballet and she became very perfectionistic about that. at that point her mother also had anorexia and she developed anorexia so when she got to college what she had learned was i I must do everything perfectly." She was engaged to the perfect guy. she had she did have great friends, but they didn't know that she struggled with the anorexia, especially. Mm-hmm. And she gradually told me that, again, very gradually, because this is scary, people. Perfectionism has been their friend. Perfectionism has been the way they have accomplished things. And so when I say, well, you know, maybe it's better to have another strategy. It's like, you're asking about my best friend. But what had happened was, it turned out her was abusing her physically, and sometimes sexually, that he knew a secret about her that she didn't want anybody to know, and that she finally very tearfully or not even very somewhat tearfully told me about and he had been blackmailing her that you know she better marry him and she about a year into treatment but she was going to marry him she ended breaking off the engagement and after that and then we we worked toward accepting that and she, she began to eat more normally and all that kind of thing. She told me two things as when we were sort of ending therapy. One, she said, I had a plan to kill myself when I walked in your door. I was going to mm-hmm. kill myself three weeks after I got married. And two, she said she told me what the secret was and she and she said I I didn't think anyone would be could know that about me and, and I would be accepted. I felt like I would be, and she said, but I told you, and you, you just held, you know, held, held those emotions with me and said, you, you don't know the gift that you gave me. And so she'd been around in shame and she was a wonderful young woman to work with and I actually talked to her again last year, and she reiterated that beginning to confront her own perfectionism and her own shame had freed her. And it was interesting too, she went on a trip with her mother, and her mother's rules had been, when they went on a car trip, that women don't eat. Men can eat, I don't care how long it is, but women can't eat on the car trip. And she got in the car and she said, mom, I'm hungry, and your mother goes "Now we don't eat on car trips we girls, we don't eat. And she said, mother, I'm hungry. Please stop the car. So she was making really big changes in her life.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. That's really inspiring, you know, that somebody's life was not only transformed, but saved from losing a really potential life to suicide. So thank you for doing that. I would love to kind of share some of the tools uh, with our audience uh, that if they are having something like this or or they know somebody, what are some of the steps they can take so that they can get the proper help if needed or take care of themselves better? Sure. You know, I had
1: a book as a, as a descriptive book. I was just trying to describe this syndrome, and I thought that's where it would end. And the people who have been published it, New Harbinger said, oh, no, 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 we need a treatment strategy. And then they looked at me and they said, and you have two weeks. I went, oh, two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did... I came up with the five C's of healing or treatment, and the first one I've already really been talking about, which is consciousness or mindfulness. Consciousness that you are, you become aware that your your perfectionism is destructive, not constructive, and that you can recognize that in yourself and accept. Mindfulness again, being aware of what and how how your how your whole life is geared around having other people think of you as highly successful and productive and and, keep, and you don't let anyone in on the secret. The second stage is commitment. And there's some specific commitments that are difficult for someone with perfectionism or a need for control. Uh, one, they'll feel like, they've, what do you mean? I go to, what do you mean? I let someone, on all this, I, you know, this has been a big secret for me, and and you you'll often start with something too hard because you're a perfectionist. Uh, there are over sixty exercises in the book that lead people, and they start out fairly simply uh, for someone who's never delved into their emotions. They're not simple, but and then you know, I had a woman tell me, "Oh, well, I just skipped all that stuff because I've been." <laughs> And I went straight to the uh, to the trauma timeline, and she said, I couldn't do it. And I said, because you have to do all these others to prepare yourself for that. Yeah. So there's some specific commitments that are in the book that are hard to confront or hard to do. Yeah. The third stage so is... Con-
0: before, before we move on, I'm just thinking that maybe these exercises would help people who are perfectionists, who may not have developed depression yet, but maybe yep. it would help them to prevent reaching to that point.
1: You know, Rosina, you, you make an excellent point because a lot of perfectionists will tell you, oh, I'm not a perfectionist. And I do. <laughs> well, but, oh. <laughs> well, I'm happy to share I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, but that's why that consciousness phase comes first because it is about I must recognize that there are my perfectionism is not my friend and I'm I'm using it as a taskmaster. So uh, so a lot of people will tell me I I and I wish I'd put more of this in the book, but I I can recognize I need a lot of control. Not be a perfectionist, but a lot of control. And so this these are good exercises for anyone. To actually, people
0: uh, people who at least recognize that they are either control freaks or they're <laughs> right. they right. they can benefit from these exercises and so let me ask the question to the audience right now do you have any any tool that you use to mask your emotion or suppress your emotion because like you know a lot of people use smile or laughter to hide but i know that there are people who also use anger to hide or they kind of like, you know, isolate to hide their feelings so that nobody recognize that they are feeling what they're feeling. Please, please put in the comment section if you can identify one tool that you may have used to mask your feelings. And here, let me ask Margaret, is masking really bad? Like, you know, if I have a patient who, who is who's on a customer service position, and so when she was feeling depressed, she had a hard time controlling her tears. But it is necessary part of the work. You cannot just start crying in front of people, whether it is customer service, whether it's in other colleagues, there is certain boundary that you have to maintain. And for that you have to mask the your emotion. So is that masking bad? And if it is not, how do you differentiate that masking from not feeling emotions at all? So that numbness yeah. that you're talking about.
1: Com- <laughs> I mean, if I had won the lottery this morning, I was still, I had agreed to be on your show. And so, you know, if I'd won a million dollars, I'd still be here. If my dog had died this morning, I would still need to be here. I would need to compartmentalize those feelings. Again, the, the distinction is that it, and that's an ego skill. The distinction is that it's rigid, it's constant. People will say things like, when you said, how do you hide it? I had so many people tell me they just don't, they just tell people, oh, you know, I don't ever cry. I'm just not here. Or if I started crying, I'd never stop. And they laugh it off, like you said. So it's about, I, I think you hide it through like any means you possibly can. People tell me, again, I did interviews and I've had them tell me, I asked them why they would even talk with me. They were sort of revealing to me their secret. And they said, I'm, I've been so tremendously lonely all my life. I never want anybody to feel like that. It's a very lonely kind of way to live.
0: It's the difference
1: in the severity and rigidity, like you said. So it's
0: okay to mask when it is appropriate to mask, but it has to be balanced with being able to express when it is also appropriate to express. Like you said, these people don't even express to their close friends or family because they are not
1: comfortable even sharing it with their close friends and family. Right. There may be one person that knows them like that but a lot of the time that person is not someone who lives in the same city they do it's a friend from high school that lives you know far away so they can risk letting that person know a little bit more about them but yeah and so the the third stage confrontation and that's basic behavioral therapy It's you you want to write down the rules that you're following and you know i can never cry i i always have to try my best i can never be caught without a smile on my face whatever that is and really begin or maybe it's a real i i I want to stop at stop signs i mean some rules need to follow and we want to follow and they actually fulfill they're very fulfilling to follow then there are other rules that we met, we were either told we had to follow as children or we chose to follow as children that are now non-productive in our lifetime. And you can begin to say, I don't want to confront those rules. I don't want to live my life this way anymore. My own life is that there was very, she was overly protective, highly overly protective. So I learned to just risk her knowing it and get, and, and, and that was how I, a lot of the things i got because i would tell her well god i've already tried out for the play or i've already done this or i've already done that and she'd go okay well and but guess what that strategy that rule got to be an adult not effective because it turned out that i was in i was a very impulsive adult that i didn't i didn't think through some of my decisions because i just did it and so that was not that was a rule that needed to change in my lifetime what about the step four that's step, step four, action, and that's that has to do with that trauma timeline we were talking about a few minutes ago, and that is about going back through your life and acknowledging with compassion, acknowledging with compassion what happened to you that was wonderful and brought you joy and you were proud of, but also the things that were hard now this is this is really difficult for anyone with true trauma in their lives so some sometimes this part of the work needs to be done with a therapist okay Uh, that's I say that throughout the book actually so that's connect learning to connect with that pain and to label it as as such and to know it exists and accept it exists and to be able to actually feel it and, and talk about it the fifth is change. I don't know about you, we're both mental health professionals, but what I've learned in my 25, or actually 28 years by now, is that hope from inside You connect the dots is very helpful. But, you know, real hope is from behavior change. When I'm doing something differently, when I'm feeling differently when i'm you know choosing if that's where you get hope because you are you see yourself changing so i had so i have specific ideas in the book about how to change each one of those traits again slowly and carefully with self-compassion
0: that's wonderful so five steps you defined was consciousness commitment confrontation connection and change great thank you so much and you have a gift to share with the audience so can you tell us what would be the gift for them
1: well, I, I think that uh, a mantra that I have made up in my own life, actually, and I believe is I say often to my patients, is that your strengths do not define you any more than your abilities do, nor do your abilities define you any your strengths. I have three letters after my name. I'm a PhD. I'm very proud of that. I've also been married three times, and I'm not proud of that. You know, that was chaotic and impu- one of those impulsive things. And I've now been married for over 30 years, but the first two were voices on my part. their part too actually. And so those are both facts me. Be judged on either one. Some people, are professionals are a little wacky. <laughs> uh, I'm not to be praised because I've been married three times. But neither of those facts define me any more than the other facts.
0: Let me ask the audience, if you guys have any questions at this time, please put it in the comment section and we'll try to answer. And meanwhile, let me ask Margaret, can you tell us about how people can get your book?
1: Sure. It's on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. Go to your bookseller, local bookseller who probably gets this. Uh, I've heard it's in the public library at this point so you can go and get it wherever you can you also can go to perfectlyhiddendepression.com and that that'll take you to my website you can reach me at drmargaretrutherford.com that's my site i have a podcast as well called the self-work podcast and i would love to welcome your listener. that's um that's kind of where i'm on well, <laughs> for today i have a column yeah. on psychology yeah. today
0: And I'm excited that you are also sharing one free book with people who, if you guys want to win the chance of winning her book, please go ahead and comment below this video and we'll pick one lucky winner who would get a copy of her book. And like always, you can get all the resources shared in these programs. And by, by texting us the word joyful to 38470, or joining our Facebook group, Happy and Healthy Minded Dr. Rosina. And before we go into the special, I want to just ask, Margaret, do you have any last take-home message?
1: Well, I I think that the antidote is one to wicked depression is self-acceptance. And again, my definition of self-acceptance is what I just said. Your strengths don't define you any more than your vul- vulnerabilities and vice versa. So I, I wish everyone well. And you can email me at AskDrMargaret and at DrMargaretRutherford.com if you have any specific questions. And I'll be glad to, I can see that some people have written some things. So that's wonderful. And I'll send you the book if, if it would be helpful to you
0: wonderful thank you so much and so before i go into the special let me make another announcement guess what we have been doing this program for one whole year so SM is, SM is going to be one year old and the next program we are going to celebrate as a celebration. And we have lots of prizes and raffle and things going on. So remember to join next time. And uh, watch out for all those posting, because you can either uh, participate in a contest of submitting a video message and uh, win the prizes or answer the questionnaire. That would be in in the link in the comment section. And it's all on our social media. So participate in those contests, win the prizes, send us the questions, send us, let us know how this year of HHM has helped you or what difference it has made in your life. And if you have any questions that you would like to address in our future, Programs, we'd be happy to address them and plan our next year accordingly. And so now it's time for the special. And so for special for today, I'm going to answer a question that a lot of people ask. How do we decide when to seek treatment? You see, depression and anxiety is so common. Everybody experiences some depression and anxiety. How do you decide when to do the self-work and when to seek professional care? So i have four five points that you can consider before deciding so number one is how severe are the problems or symptoms okay so everybody feels a little depressed when something bad happens everybody feels some a little anxious before you know if they are worried about something before an exam before starting the facebook live, before before doing anything new there's a little bit of anxiety which is normal and it helps you prepare for things so it depends on how severe the things is so severity then second thing is duration how long it has been going on so if a little some you have some depression going on for maybe a day or two it may not be the depression but if it is going on for more than two weeks so the duration matters the third thing is how it is interfering in your life so is it something that is preventing you from being able to function at work or school or in family and you know in some ways it is affecting your functioning um that that is the third consideration the fourth consideration is trigger are there things that really trigger your anxiety or depression like you know when you go to a party and suddenly like you know you see somebody and and you get really triggered or uh, simple thing so then you start avoiding and so then the fifth thing is how overall it is impacting your life you know if you are depressed and you don't enjoy going out with your friends enjoy watching the movies that you used to like and so your life starts kind of shrinking and the quality of life starts going. And so those are the five points to consider if things are kind of crossing those boundaries. That means the normal depressed and anxiety is now changing into something clinical and you really need to seek help. And the one point that you want to remember is that health and wellness is a continuum, it's not like switch on and off. Okay. So. So illness and wellness is a continuum. Sometimes you are at the optimum level of wellness and sometimes you are at the severe level of illness, but most of the times you are somewhere in between. So you want to take steps at every uh, stage to be at the optimum level of wellness. If you have, if you don't have any symptoms, you want to take steps to prevent things from happening. If there are, and work on optimizing your health and happiness, and that has been the goal of HHM to give you the tools for optimizing your health and happiness. If you are having some symptoms, whether in terms of depression or stress or anxiety or other problems, but it is not severe enough to reach the clinical level, then you need to take more steps to prevent that stress from going becoming more severe. And if you do have the symptoms that are meeting the criteria, then you want to seek treatment so that it doesn't get further worse. So those are the three levels of prevention. I call it primary prevention when there is no problem, secondary prevention a little bit problem you're at risk but not severe and the uh, tertiary prevention when you are having the illness then you take the steps from getting it worse and all these things i'm going to be talking about in my upcoming book uh, dodging depression and anxiety and i hope it would help a lot of people take these preventive actions please share with me any questions that you would like me to address in the book if you'd like to be part of the early readers group please share and i'll continue need to share more and more tools uh, in these programs in future. So let me leave you with this question. Are you going to choose to hide your suffering and not take steps to get better? Or are you going to choose to become conscious and mindful of what is going on and take steps to live your best life? On that question, stay safe, healthy, and happy. Till next time.